You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Donnie, it's good to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ledge. I appreciate being here. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. So would you mind giving a little background story of, of yourself and your work, you know, so the audience can get to know you? Sure. So uh, my background is uh, I'm an electrical engineer and minoring in computer science. I did that back at North Carolina State University in 85. And then I got an MBA degree from Duke University. Uh, that was 1994. I've spent most of my entire life uh, working in software. I started out writing software and eventually ended up managing software and then started a few companies and continue to do that today. Fantastic. So I know you got some some entrepreneurial adventures that we were talking about a little bit off off mic there. So I, I would love if you shared some of that with the audience. We love a good story. Sure. So the company I have now is called Software Development Europe. Uh, we are in our 24th, starting our 24th year. And uh, it really got started uh, very interestingly back in 1994, 1995. It was a project from Duke University that I was doing for my MBA. Uh, what was interesting is, is that um, in about 1993-94 timeframe, I had about 200 software developers reporting to me, and I had about 100 software developers in India uh, reporting to me through some outsourcing. So we were doing outsourcing back in the early 90s. That's not something that's actually new today. And uh, we were having some struggles, a little bit of struggles with the India staff, with the time differences and the English. So uh, I actually had to do a business plan around a problem that I had, and I wrote a whole business plan around using Central Europe and Eastern Europe for outsourcing versus using, say, India as an example. And I wrote this business plan, turned it into my professor, uh, you know, and about two weeks later, I'm sitting in my office one day and my professor calls me up from Duke University and says, hey, Donnie, he goes, uh, this business plan you wrote, did you write this for grade or you got a real problem? And my first question was, hey, did I get a good grade? He goes, yeah, yeah, you got a good grade. He said, I says, no, this is a real problem. I said, I would really uh, like to figure out how to get more into Central Europe and Eastern Europe, and but I don't really know anybody there. And it was just by, you know, coincidence, there was a gentleman there at the university working who had spent, uh, he was an American, had spent five years in Vienna and had moved to Moscow for seven years and essentially uh, had moved back, married a lady from Moscow and moved back and was working with Duke University to actually bring uh, Russian businessmen over for short training sessions at Duke University. 
he connected me with this gentleman and uh, we hit it off really well. And then we basically put this company together called Software Development Europe. And it's a really cool story. We spent about six months to nine months trying to figure out where in the world we wanted to put our company. And uh, we looked at a lot of different places. We went to Czech Republic. We looked at Prague. We looked in Brno, Czech Republic. We looked in Kiev, Ukraine. We went to Russia. We looked at St. Petersburg and we looked at Moscow. And we ended up choosing Brno, Czech Republic, which is the second largest city in Czech Republic. And uh, what was interesting is, is the main reasons were is uh, they had two major technical universities there. They were a six-hour time difference to the East Coast, which made it easier for me to use them. And then the third one was is everybody spoke English uh, because at the universities, they were required to do their thesis work and their master's work and uh, actually present in English and write their stuff in English. So that's how we got this company started almost 24 years ago. It's kind of a cool story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know like we source engineers, you know, sort of all the time. And I mean, there's... There's unquestionably great engineers everywhere. I think people sometimes underestimate the challenges of that, you know, sort of what we call offshoring. Uh, there's new answers for near shoring. Well, it's the same time zone if we go to, you know, Central South America. Right. Interesting stuff there. Um, but yeah, there's so much to unpack because, you know, it's how do you access that? Uh, international talent that that can be you know fantastic, uh, but there are, you know simply other challenges with you know culture and language and and just you know uh, business knowledge. You know how do you do things differently in in your country? Um, I mean, you had to solve all this before this was a a well known thing. You know, it, it's now sort of like everybody caught up with you twenty years later. I don't know. What are you thinking? Are you, are you laughing a little bit about this and saying, "Yeah, thanks, thanks for giving me a head start"? Yeah, that's funny. I, I do laugh at it because if you think back about when we started this in nineteen ninety five, uh, just a little bit side here. When we went to Bruno, there was only one other company in Bruno, Czech Republic, that was not a Czech company. And that was ABB, and they opened their lab in March. And you're right. When we went there and opened in 1995, we had to buy Sun workstations for everybody. All right. I mean, and, you know, and, and the basically way we communicated was by telephone calls. So everything was so barbaric to dad then compared to what it is today. I mean, you think about how technology today has made it so much easier to do successful outsourcing, to get access to tap, capital talent around the world. And uh, we didn't have all that, you know, 25 to 30 years ago. And it's just, it's really interesting to see how that has just matured over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now it's like, you know, let me just Google for, you know, so I want to have some Eastern European developer. I mean, you get an email every day from you know, a shop somewhere that's, that's trying to do this stuff and, and it probably has some success. You know, um, I, I do think that it takes a great deal of education, you know, for the buyer to, um, to exploit what, you know, I, I think what starts and maybe um, is originally motivated by a cost factor, you know, that people often think that there's a cost arbitrage to work in, you know, from different places. And that's true, um, but it certainly can't be the only driver. So, you know, when you think about outsourcing and, and your experience, um, you know, what was different from, from doing that now and then and you know versus you know in the u.s or i don't know canada or you know something like that like what 
what's been important in that story for you? So I think if you if you think about from where we started, you know, 20 some years ago to today, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the technology has moved so far. And just to give you some examples, just to something to do with code storage, right? Being able, when GitHub came along and being able to put all this stuff into the cloud, it just opened up the world to be able to have clients and resources be able to work together as teams and share that information across. I mean, that's a that's a perfect example of that, you know, and another one that's really come along that uh, that I think has made a huge change for us in the in the what I call co-source and outsourcing world is the process of Agile and Scrum. Uh, if you think back about, you know, the, the many years ago, a lot of times companies would take projects, throw them over the fence, and then you work on them a while and you throw it back over the fence. And next thing you know, everybody's flipping everything across the fence. And it just sometimes were just disasters and sometimes it were successful. But with the Agile Scrum process now, we're connecting our engineers every day with our with our customers on a daily basis. And that really has tore down a lot of the walls then if you think about things like slack has come along and given us the ability to be able to have developers no matter where they are in the world set and collaborate as teams and that's just been huge and then now you've got things like zoom what we're using today to do this communication with and you've got skype and hangouts now you've got people being able to communicate almost seamlessly where when we started this, you know, 23, 24 years ago, I mean, just to get somebody on a telephone call was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, you must have, you know, like dozens and dozens of, of desk phones. And I mean, you know, there was there's no mobile telephony even at, at that point. So, I, you know, you just, just always on stuff. And I think people take that for granted now. You know, it's just this ubiquitous sort of pipe of information back and forth, which itself can be abused. So my suspicion is that you maybe have developed really good habits on efficiency of communication because of that, that history and that you don't abuse the always on pipe. Have you, you thought about that, that, you know, the, the best practices training sort of in the trenches has change the way that you use the now available technologies? Yeah, I think uh, there's a few things. One is is that uh, the engineers coming out of school today are so much more sophisticated with the use of technology than they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And and they're very <clears throat> they're very adaptive adaptive to being able to grasp new technologies and work with clients much more easily, easier than it was then. And it's really been, uh, you know, I think that's really been huge for us, I know, to be successful. And I think, you know, like in your business too, you guys do this in a certain way, putting, you know, users, people who need software developers with projects. And that communication mechanisms today has just made it so much easier for everybody. And you're right, people, people don't know the struggles we went through 20 years ago. And it's, you know, we don't want to tell those stories like, you know, I, well, I walked uphill both ways to school in the snow with bare feet and, you know, but I, I do think that um, the benefits of, of those technologies have really led the way in, in, in so many ways for not, not just technology, but to startups in, in general, you know, that starting a company now has a much lower threshold 
Um, which also leads to the fact that you can start a company without knowing too much about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it isn't, it isn't a dramatic cost. Um, the, the input necessary for you to have figured out what, what you did was probably quite substantial, you know, at, at the time, just from an investment standpoint to even, even figure out and, and get in touch with, with um, what you needed there. So what are you telling businesses now, you know, when you, when you talk about, um, this kind of model, you know, we're in a, we're in a pretty aggressive growth stage for um, demand for engineers. You know, what, what are, what are the important thought processes? Sure, I'll uh, give you just a little bit. Uh, just last week, I had a bunch of executives I was given a, a lecture to here in North Carolina. And just to give you an example, we have about 27,000 IT positions open. And about 15,000 of those are software developers. And what I'm trying to get companies to understand is whether they use our company or use somebody else's company, yours or whoever, every company out there today needs to think about some type of co-sourcing, outsourcing strategy because you don't have access to software developers that uh, in your current states here in the state in the United States that we that we need to be able to meet all the job requirements. So if you don't have an outsourcing strategy, you need to create one. And then once you create that and say that you're going to do it, then you need to think about the criteria that's going to make that successful or not. Yeah, and you are just hiring people in a different context or a different delivery method. Uh, but I, I think it it really comes to you know, what's, what's overall your, your human capital and talent strategy. You know, it, it, how you procure that talent mm-hmm. is one question. Um, but how do I know that I'm procuring the right talent, you know, is, is another question. And it, it's not always just a fit. Uh, there seems to often be this idea that, you know, every engineer is the same. And, you know, I, I think we lose track sometimes that, that these are very human organizational things that go on and that not everybody fits everywhere. It's not just about writing code. And in fact, I don't know what you see, but you know, most of the tech leaders that I talk to is it's just, it's 80% not writing code. It's, it's a lot of the soft skills and qualitative things. You're absolutely right. And, and, and the companies that are thinking about an outsourcing strategy, they need to think about a few things. Uh, One is they need to think about time differences. And what's acceptable is like you just mentioned a while ago, if only a two hour time difference is acceptable, you maybe need to look at South America. If you can handle 12 hours, 13, maybe you can look in India. If six hours, you need to look in Central Europe. So that's one that, that they really need to think about. The language is another one they really need to think about. Like how important is it if it needs to be English and can make sure and all those developers can speak English? Uh, that's important. Cultural differences. You know, we one of the things I try to get a point, get across to companies is, is that different places in the world have different thought processes and have different cultures. And I give you an example. Like, you know, with India, their engineers there are a lot of times are very fast and they're very quick and get things done. They're really great in the QA area. But if you look in Central Europe, they're not going to be as fast, but they're going to be much more high quality software. You know, for example, in Czech Republic, we're right next to Germany and there's a lot of you know, a lot of people and the skill sets match up with like how the Germans think in terms of building software. You need to think about that. And, and then I think the other thing you need to think about is, is the companies need to consider is, is when you're looking at talent and if you've got to be able to add more talent in the future, 
you need to think about where you're going and what universities surround those companies that you're looking at. And I tell you, that was one of the things that was been a little secret sauce for us is, is that anytime we open up a lab, we like to make sure there's at least a couple technical universities very close by that we can get talent from. So when you're looking at hiring a company or partnering with an outsourcing company, you know, make sure that company has access to what I call really good talent. And probably the other one I think that we haven't really covered is, is IP. Uh, you need to be thinking about your your intellectual property you have, and thinking about where where can you go, which parts of the world can you, what parts of the world can you go that you feel like you've got safe protection of your IP, and uh, and I think that's one a lot of times people don't think about until it's a little bit too late. Everybody asks about that. You know, I I, I get those questions a lot. I know on on our side, you say, well, will I own the code, and will you know. Um, what about if somebody steals my code? And, and I mean, the reality is that, you know, if, if you have professional folks who operate under a good professional umbrella, you know, those, those things should not happen any more than they, they could happen if you just went down the street to, you know, some other company and, you know, all of your stuff, uh, no matter what you do in code world, no matter what controls you put in place, uh, the reality is that that's just a bunch of text and, and it can be stolen. You need to understand who you're doing business with, uh, you know, a repo, the, the same things that make, you know, get so awesome are also make it, you know, you can just copy whatever you want. And therefore you really, uh, you need to think about who are these people I'm doing business with? And that is a serious part of that cost equation and uh, the risk calculus of there's a lot of places you can send and get cheap code. Um, it'll also end up uh, God knows <laughs> where. Right? So you got to be careful with that. Um, you, you mentioned uh, when we were, you know, preparing that you've done some thinking about how to, to bid and contract um, under an agile context, you know, where, whereby, you know, I, as you know, every client is going to come in and say, I want to know, here's what I want. And I want to know what it's going to cost very much waterfall. Totally understand from a business perspective, why someone would do that. Uh, but we do have, you know, to get asked the questions a lot. Well, okay. So you want to do agile. Does that just mean I'm writing you a blank check and you just get to do whatever you want? So I'm curious how you, how you come. Yes. So, uh, so basically there are, uh, I actually talk, give a little, I give lectures on actually doing, uh, agile scrum contracts for for software development. And, you know, the, the one that, you know, first on most companies come in, the first thing they want is a fixed price and, and a fixed price just doesn't work very well in an agile scrum world. Uh, in an agile scrum world and really with outsourcing time and material works best obviously for the vendor but creates the most risk for the customer and uh and and where the customer can still be successful this if they have really strong product owners so if you've got strong product owners and you've hired a really good software outsourcing firm time and material can work very well we use that in our model quite a bit most all of our customers follow that model there are other models there are uh, what we call the incremental model and that is is uh, where the customer and the vendor being we being the vendor like software development Europe where we basically say they'll pay for so many increments in other words they will be we'll do three three uh, three sprints 
and then we'll evaluate, do three more sprints and evaluate. So that's another another contract way we, we actually look at it. Uh, the other one probably is what's called cost targeted. Uh, that one is uh, something that's kind of new out there, and that is is where you you take the company, you the customer, and then the vendor like us, and then what happens is is you look at the customer's revenues and the vendor's revenues, and you basically start doing projects, and then when there's risk associated with overruns, you share that risk. So in other words, let's say you've got a billion-dollar company hiring a $10 million company. It may be just an example. One, one, one of the contracts we've actually looked at is where if there's an overrun, 90% of the cost is associated with the billion-dollar company. 10% of that cost overrun is associated with the, the vendor. Uh, so we still, have, we still have skin in the game. We still get hurt, but we, don't get, we get hurt only proportionally to what, what the can, be, can be provided by the, by the actual customer. The other yeah, that feels like a much better way to do like a specific performance clause. You know, like it's actually sort of commensurately that is fair correct. and doesn't and then wipe there, out there's the little one, guy. There's well, two more. One is what we called uh, cap timing materials, and that's where we actually say you got a certain budget and you got a certain amount of deliverables, and then basically you take the teams and run them as basically as fast as you can. Now that will work very well with outsourcing. Again, if you got a strong product owner on your side being the customer, and you got really strong development team, and that they can figure out what their throughput is within a couple of sprints, you can you can run that kind of model and it actually works. And we have some customers that have you know very capped budgets in a year. There's a new model that I've been introducing here lately, and we're getting ready to maybe sign our first contract with this. And I call it uh, basically time and material to fix cost. And uh, what we're doing is, and this is really different, what we're doing is we've got a customer we're looking at, and we're going to do basically three or four sprints at time and material cost. And then that's going to give us a chance to understand their technology, understand their requirements, and then we're going to give them a fixed price bid for the rest of the product. And that way we've learned ourselves, we've ramped up, we've taken some of the risk out of learning more about the product, and then we're going to take more risk on and bid in on a fixed part of the product, a fixed piece of the project, which, uh, which is. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's interesting because it would, it would give you just sort of the say, Hey, you know, we want to make sure that you're good product owners because, you know, if, if you can't adhere both sides to, uh, real scrum and agile, then, uh, you know, that's not going to work. So I imagine, you know, that that involves some kind of, um, you know, hey, let's evaluate risk down the road yes. once we all have enough better information to do that. And, you know, the scrum handbook will tell you that, you know, a sort of well-functioning teams can usually establish a, a regular cadence of velocity and understanding of throughput, you know, based on four to six sprints. So you're, you're coming into that early side there and saying, you know, um, hey, based on the science of our of our discipline, that we you know we can maybe help you figure this out, and um, it's a good presentation. Yeah, I, I like that. It's it's interesting. So uh, yeah, we haven't we'll tried it, so this will be our first time of trying it. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely have to give you some feedback on how it goes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let me give you one last question. Um, you know, we're obviously all in the business of, um, of hiring great engineers. You know, we, we have to apply a, a very rigorous process to, to do that. And it's, it's one of our hallmarks. Curious how, 
you know, what are the heuristics for you to, you know, add um, engineers sure. to your team? And I have to say, we have worked on this people? problem for 20 some years. And I would say probably in the last four or five years, we've kind of got it figured out. And here's what we do. We basically have, uh, for every hundred people who apply to our company, we essentially, ha- we have them all go take a 60 minute test. All right. That 60 minute test doesn't ask them to write one load of one line of code. It's all about logical thinking and really intelligence. So what we do is, is we basically have created algorithms and questions or, or questions where they have to create algorithms. And we can tell by how they create those algorithms, whether they will be good software developers or not. So for every hundred people that come and want to interview with our company, about four, only about 40 of them actually pass those tests. And then we actually interview that 40. And out of that 40, we make offers to about seven. And then we actually hire about four out of those seven. And uh, so we have a very rigorous process to basically, uh, so we don't try to grow very fast, but what we try to do is hire really good talent. And, and that's really been one of our secrets, secrets to success, because I told you a little earlier, we have customers that have been with us for 12 and 13 years. And uh, so we really are more about quality than we are about quantity. And then the other thing, what we found is, is that it's not necessarily computer scientists that are ones are the best thinkers. Uh, we've actually got people who have physics degrees. We've got we've got people who don't even have technology degrees who have the ability to think. And then we believe that if they have that ability to solve problems logically in a, in, in a flowing way, then they actually have the ability to write software. And we've had great success with that. I love that. I love that, you know, invite people in of different mindsets and, and, you know, it, it's cool that you've developed enough of a, you know, history and runway that you can appreciate that because it'd be hard for your, you know, one engineer startup to say, you know, we're going to hire a history major who just thinks good. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, Donnie, Hey, thanks for the, the insights. It's, it's really, really good to have you, you on. I, the I really appreciate will, the opportunity. Uh, lot thanks for listening to the frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.